So the scripture comes from Mark, uh, chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can this be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Thank you. Uh, before I get started, do we have a, is there a next step card there, Glenn, in front of you somewhere? Uh, we're running short. Anybody have one? Yeah, there we go. Thanks. Uh, this card right here, whoops, well, here it is. Yep. This card right here is uh, a way that we can connect with you. Now, the church doesn't work well if we're not in relationship with each other and communicating with each other. And this is one of our, this is kind of like our main tool. So if, if we don't have your information or if there's something in your life that we need to know about, Take advantage of that card. Uh, so here's the, here's the phrase I want to work with this morning. And that I've said this in the series because we're in this kind of controversial section of Mark. And the phrase is that Jesus Christ is a threat. And he's a threat in many different ways, at many different levels. And uh, this week, uh, just an example of this, this week in the Washington Post, there were 500 uh, what we basically would call conservative evangelical pastors who signed on to a document together saying we have real problems with the refugee uh, solutions or uh, policies that are being put forth right now by our government. So uh, whether you agree with that or not is, is I mean, we, we, it's a compli- I'll admit it's a complicated issue, but we remember that Jesus Christ himself was once a refugee. And we have to take serious his words when we think about these things. And we believe, these leaders believe, and I'm with them, that we haven't taken those words seriously enough. There's, there's real issues in this world we need to deal with. But, so these pastors are raising up the word of God, and it's a threat, in a sense, to the policies that are being made. That's an example of one way that Jesus Christ is a threat. He's done that throughout history, not just our government, other governments, certainly. But even more, at the micro level, he's a threat to any of us, so this would be, I think, all of us, who do pretty good at self-management. You know what I'm talking about here? I'm going to run my life the way I think it should be run. He's a threat to you and to me on that, at that level. So the good news is that Jesus Christ is a loving threat. And that just keep those two words together. And uh, now in, in this uh, Mark chapter 12, we've seen him uh, function in that way with a lot of different groups that have come at him. And 
if we take uh, Mark's gospel and particularly John's gospel, we hear Jesus saying big things about himself, big truth claims. In, in John's gospel, he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection. He is the bread of life. Amazing claims that he makes about himself. And you'll notice that and, and in those claims, there are threats that are behind them. And there also, there's love in them too. I am the great shepherd, he says. But one thing I want to point out to you is that when Jesus talks about himself, it's not like when I talk about my Myself. And I, you know, as my wife says, oh, you're tooting your own horn. You know, have you heard that one? It means you're, you're bragging. But somehow it's just an amazing uh, feature or quality about Jesus Christ that when he talks about himself in these grand ways, they're not grandiose. In fact, it's just like he's talking about reality. And he just puts them out there. And he asks us to respond to them. So it, it's, uh, it's in that sense that, that he's a threat. And there's love in all of that. And one of the things we might also add is that he is a, uh, he's, he's super smart. Now, that sounds trite when we're talking about Jesus with all those claims that he makes. Oh, he's, he's just really smart, you know. <laughs> because that's, uh, well, this seems so human, but he is so human. Remember that. He is both fully human and fully divine. That's the Christian uh, orthodoxy. But to say he's super smart, we see it in these passages where he continually outfoxes the fox, where he is able to just take their words, and they come to trap him, and he puts them into the trap. So that there's this, this pattern there. And you need to know that. You, would you trust somebody with your life, which is what he's asking you to do, if he weren't smart? Think about your boss at work. And they say things that continually are not, you know, they're just whatever, incompetent or non-true or whatever. And, or if, he's not, if that person, she isn't smart, you don't trust them after a while. So when Jesus speaks on a topic, whether it's human relationships or, or money or sexuality or whatever it might be, we have to say, this, he is really smart. I need to listen. Okay? So we've, we learn that about Jesus in these passages, that, that he's, uh, and we'll see it again here today. Now, what, this is the fifth of the five uh, kind of questioning passages in Mark chapter 12. And this one's a little different. He has been on the defensive. People have come at him, and this time he is the one who is raising the question. So he's on the offensive now. And he asks a question that is very, very puzzling to them. And then he follows it up with a couple of other things that are not the normal way we, we think about things. So here's our, this is our uh, overview. Uh, his laser logic, it, it's just laser. And then his warning that he gives and then the accounting that he does, which is very different from the way we tend to do accounting. So we begin with Jesus, and uh, I'm going to just walk through these verses, and he's in the temple courts. So we, we read that while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, so once again, I want to get this model up there, and these are the temple courts out here that he would be teaching in on Tuesday and Wednesday of what we would call now Holy Week. Then it was called Passover Week, because it's the week that all the, uh, the Jewish people would gather for the great Feast of Passover, and this is the, this is the one and only temple uh, in, in Israel at the time. 
So this, is, this population would swell during this week. Maybe, who knows how, how big it got, but it got way bigger than it normally was. And so there'd be a lot of people wandering around out here, and Jesus was teaching them. And this is also where John, when John talks about Jesus in the temple, Jesus makes a statement that says, see this temple? Destroy it, and I will build it back up in three days. Now, what's he talking about? Whenever you hear three days in Scripture, you might think the resurrection. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about his body being the true temple, that he himself is the true temple of Israel. And it will be destroyed, and it will be built back up in three days on on Sunday. All right, so we're in the temple court, and uh, reading on, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the Son of God? David. So uh, this would be the common belief of those who were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, is that the Christ is the son of David. And we would, we would hold that too. The New Testament would hold that to be true. He is the son of David, but there's a little problem here if that's what you limit him to. So Jesus says that David himself, and David would have lived a thousand years before Christ, He's the son of David in the sense of he's in the line of David. So that's the way the Bible talks about if you could be a son. I mean, really, you're a great, 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 great grandson, but you're, you're still called a son of David. And David is the gold standard for what a king should look like. He was always the one by which everyone else was graded, you know, like, is he like David? So Jesus says, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, and this is where the conundrum comes in, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. For the fourth time out of, out of these five uh, sessions, I want to make this point that Jesus quotes scripture. And um, he, he, that's another thing we can say about Jesus is he knows, the, he knows the Bible, which, of course, he's smart and he knows the Bible. He's Jesus, right? Well, he, this, is, this is what he says to the, in John chapter 5, 39. He says to the Pharisees that you study the scriptures. So they, they knew the scriptures. They had the, the Old Testament. And you diligently, or diligently because you think that in them you will have eternal life, which is true. It's true. But... These are the scriptures, the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so you can read the Bible all you want, but unless God himself enlightens your eyes, you don't get it. We, with just the, this, the ink on these pages, it's not enough. We'll never get there. It has to be a God thing. The fact that you understand what the Bible is saying is because God has opened your heart. There's no other way. This is not like education in school. This is... God revealing. This, this is what Jesus is saying here. So he gets what the scriptures are saying in a way that they don't. Uh, well, the, the, here's the conundrum. How can the Lord, I would mean, how could God say to my Lord, how could David say that? How come it wouldn't say, the Lord said to my son? I mean, he, that's, that would imply this one who is in his line. How can... How can how can it be? You can't. Why is David looking up to his son? That's another way to say it. Um, and the only way you can do this, and this is where Jesus just leaves, he doesn't answer it, but the way he's saying it is your view of Messiah is way too small. You're thinking of that Messiah who's going to make Israel great again. That's what they were thinking. Israel is going to be a great nation again, just like it was under David. And what 
we're not talking about my Lord as being the son of David. We're talking about, which he is, but we're talking about him being the son of God. And so their categories are way too small. And this son of God is going to come and not just deal politically and militarily and make Israel into a great nation. That's, that's missing the point. He, he's got bigger fish to fry. He's, going to look at the whole, he's looking at the whole world and he's looking at the problems of the whole world. He's looking into the problems of our own human hearts and why we worry and why we just said that prayer about anxiety and all the things that are going on in our nation and all the things that have gone on in every nation in history and he identifies sin as the issue and death as the issue and an adversary named the devil. And that's what Jesus, or the Son of God, is going to deal with. Now, that's just, you know, reading back into what he's saying, but that's the conundrum. Their view of who Christ is or the Messiah is is way too small. One of the things you want to know here, I want to, I want to speak a lot today about the qualities of Jesus that we should respect or maybe stop and admire. And so what you're seeing here as he does this, remember, he's very, very smart as he's doing this. They're, they're, you know what their response to him was? We read it last week, that no one dared to ask him any more questions. Have you ever had a teacher like that, you know? I mean, they're just too smart. And, they, you know, they make you feel like you're not. And so they, they stopped asking him questions. So he's really, really smart. But the other thing he is, he's very self-confident. Uh, and I want to suggest that you admire that, whether you would know it or not, but if you are... Uh, somebody who's ever watched a Hollywood movie that had a leading man in it, and you admire that leading man, it's in part because you admire the, the assurance and self-confidence that that person has, and they just don't deal with life in the same way that the average person does. They don't have those awkward moments, and they have to deal with the trivial and, and the um, little things of the heart that most people have to deal with. You know how that, I mean, I think of George Clooney here, if you will, for just a sec, just a sec, just, I don't want to talk too much about him, but but Jesus has those kind of qualities where just the voice and all the rest, it, it just seemed, they seem to rise above the fray of where normal humans live, and we're attracted to that. One of the phrases, that's enough on George Clooney, but that's just an example. Um, and, but one of the reasons I bring it up is because Jesus has this amazing ability to not get caught up in the anxieties of the moment. And uh, my wife is, in my life, she has that kind of, I mean, she's not all the time, because she can uh, get pretty, sometimes when I'm driving, she gets really nervous, but, <laughs> but she has this ability to calm other people down, and people who have been around her, they, they say, can I just go stand by your wife for a while? Okay, you know, whatever, but, uh, but yeah, she does. And just sitting by her, she has a calming effect. But think of Jesus that way. Here's the phrase. He has a non-anxious presence. And when you're with somebody who is a social, you know, socially some of us feel kind of awkward sometimes. We're trying to make conversations. We just had to stand up, greet one another time, and you know, you kind of, you know, and, and, uh, but Jesus has this non-anxious presence. He makes you feel at ease unless you're the one who's, you know, coming at him because he, he puts them on the defensive. But he, he just, within himself, there's an assurance and a calm that um, puts other people uh, at ease or makes us want to be around him or makes us want to be like him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I mean, I want you to think, why do I love Jesus? Well, there's another reason right there. And uh, to hunger for that is a good thing. So then they stop answering or, or asking him questions and he goes on to another topic. And this is the second the warning that he gives is the second part that we're dealing with. Verse 38. 
As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. So listen to what they do. They like to walk around in flowing robes. I made sure I didn't wear a flowing robe today. (laughs) And it would be white. That would be the, the color. When everybody else was wearing colors, they would be wearing the white robe, which would set them apart. And if it was just kind of the sense of holiness about them, Uh, My view is that they're walking along, but it almost looks like they don't have feet. They're just kind of floating along. And they have that. And when they go into, oh, here's, let's keep reading here. I don't need to say any more on that. And and when they go into the marketplace, they're greeted there. Hey, Rabbi, how you doing? You know, everybody kind of knows who you are. They respect you. They honor you. And they have the most important seats in the synagogue, just like these right here in the front row that nobody ever sits in. (laughs) Right there. And the places of honor at banquets, so um, it's all for show. Is it uh, just me, or is it, is it easier to look good than it is to be good? Come on, come on, come on. It's, it's, it's easier, right? It's easier to look good than to genuinely be good. And that uh, a, a, explains a lot of the world that we, we live in. Have you ever noticed that little kids don't make very good hypocrites? They'll either, they'll either say something wonderful or something horrible, but it hasn't been double processed. Like, you know how we would think something horrible, but we would say something wonderful, right? It's just, there's, there's only one gear in there, and we, got, we have multiple gears as we get older, and the, I hate to say it, but politicians, have the, are, they're really the best at this, of looking good without being good. Now, I, I, that's too cynical a comment, and I, I, well, no, I don't take it back, but, <laughs> but that's, what, that's the world of politics, is that ability, if you will, uh, to do that. You know, and before I read on, there's this thing about comparing ourselves because when you see somebody who looks holier than you, and, you know, I don't know what that, whatever that means in your world, but maybe, that, maybe it's somebody on TV that just looks holier than, than you know, they seem to live at that kind of God level and they, they have maybe some of the same qualities as, as here. Certainly you don't want to put me in that category. I'm trying to, uh, you know, the only thing about a pedestal is it's a longer fall, right? And so, uh, but here's the problem with comparing our lives to other people, whether it's spiritually or maybe emotionally or whatever. There's this phrase that I've grabbed onto that I think is so true, and that is that um, when we compare ourselves, we're in trouble because we're looking at the outside of other people's houses and comparing them to the inside of our house. And some people can make their yards look really, really wonderful. But if you were to go into that house, it's a whole other story. That's what, these, that's what the, the flowing robes is all about. Underneath those robes are people who struggle with the same issues that you do. So when we compare ourselves to other people spiritually, just we have to be sure we understand that they're, it's an outward thing that we're comparing to. And it, it's not a fair comparison. It's, not, it's, not apple, it's apples and oranges. The other thing that we can do that's dangerous when we compare ourselves is to try to be then like them. Instead of feeling bad about ourselves, we try harder to be like them and we fall into the same trap of looking good on the outside. And looking good is easier than being good, right? So this is where Jesus, I mean, this is all stuff that's underneath what Jesus is saying. 
So there's a scripture that captures all this in the Old Testament, and I think it would be on most people's favorite verses of the Old Testament. The Lord said to Samuel, this is about David when he's going to get crowned. They first took out one of, took one of David's bigger brothers to see if he would be the king. And, and um, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance, his flowing robes, we might say, or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, isn't that a, isn't that a good verse. I mean, I know the whole, the whole Bible, right? It's good, right? But isn't that a good verse that sort of stands out? Now, here's the problem with that verse. It's really good when you first read it, because you're thinking about other people. <laughs> oh, the Lord is looking at my heart, too. And then it's a little, remember back to that word threat? It feels threatening, doesn't it? A little bit? George Herbert was a poet in the 17th century who said, that he, that means God, God looks at the heart and we get to look at the faces. Where do we put the value? We put the value on outward things. Isn't God unique in this way? And we have to be careful that we don't try to be God too and try to guess what people's motivations are, what's really going on in their heart. Because sometimes their hearts are pure and we think they're not. I mean, we're not very good at that. So we have to be careful on this. But um, that's... He's so smart. Let's come back to that one. The last verse of this section. They devour these people who are putting on a show. They devour widows' houses for a show, and they make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished even more, or most severely. So think of it this way, that God hates religious sin probably more than any other kind of sin. It's a big deal to God. My... my um, Patty's, Patty's grandmother, I remember she used to send checks into a particular evangelist who was on TV. Part of her social security would go towards this guy who was a total fraud. Well, what did I just say? Don't judge other people's motivation. But he was caught with prostitutes. Does that count? <laughs> that counts, right? So, but this is, this is what's going on there. They, they are... Uh, doing something and then praying about the bad thing they're doing. They're, 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 they're mixing that together. And it's, it's just trying to sanctify the sin. All right. Third part of this is the accounting. And this is where we'll end. Uh, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put. Let's get this picture back up here. Uh, this is important. It, it really does uh, tell us a lot about what's going on. So probably... Because the receptacles were, this is the court of the women, or women. Uh, women were not allowed to go into this court of the priests. They were here. This is the court of the Gentiles out here. Um, the receptacles for the treasury were probably on this wall. There were 13 of them. So if, if Jesus was sitting down, he was probably, maybe, we don't know, but maybe sitting on these steps right here, looking this direction. And... Um, what happens next? Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Remember, it's a festival week. It's a holy week. They're putting, um, lots of people are putting offerings in. Many rich people threw in large amounts, which you'd kind of hope, I mean, that's not a bad thing, that the rich people should be putting in large amounts. 
But that's not where the focus is here yet. A poor woman or a poor widow came. Now you wonder, you have to wonder if this wasn't one of the widows that was uh, devoured, her, houses were, or her house was devoured by the teachers of the law in the previous section. But a poor widow uh, came in and she put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. So you have, you have the rich people putting in large amounts and you have this woman putting in uh, just a little bit. And then calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more. She's put in more. That should get their attention. She's put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, she put everything in, all that she had to live on. Now, that's not, that does not qualify as smart to do what she did. I mean, her financial advisor would not say that's something you should do. And we would be impressed if she had only put one coin in, not two. I mean, I would be. That's half of what she had she gave away. So this is very radical. And we have to hover over it for a moment to allow the, the threats that come with following Jesus to have their way in us and to see what we can get from it. So the wealthy came and they gave out of what? Out of their wealth, out of the margins, out of the leftovers. And she gave, this is the literal translation of what she gave. She put in everything, even her whole life. Um, when, when I was, uh, let's see, in my 20s, I owned a 19, this it was an older, yeah, it was a 1972 Ford Econoline van, gold. And um, very, just, you know, it was basic VAN, you know. And the, the reason I bring it up is because I could get everything I owned into that van. I remember moving. And everything fit. And, and truth be told, that if I were to have given all that stuff away, it wouldn't have been a big deal. That's everything I owned right there. I mean, at least in terms of material possessions. I think that's the last time that was true. When we moved down here from Alaska, there was just this, it was like, I don't know, we had all these phone, it was really complicated, all these phone calls to different moving places and, you know, who's, how's the car going to get down here and how's the other, you know, van. It, anyway, it was really complicated. So I was trying to think, how, how could that work? How could that work for me today? Because I have learned to give out of my wealth, not my all. I didn't give it all the way back then either, but it wouldn't have been a big deal had I done it. I just want to make that clear, you know. But if my car had been, you know, gone up in flames with everything in it, it wouldn't have been a great loss, so I'm just trying to think, how does this work spiritually to, to do what, what this woman did? And, and I'm not sure that, 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 that it's a direct application. That there, I know there's more going on here, but I think we have to hover over that to at least allow the Lord, who, whose word is true, to, to sink down into our hearts and to feel the, the weight of what she did. She gave out of her poverty, not her wealth. She gave everything she had. She gave her whole life.
So to, to help understand that and maybe just bring a little more texture to it, but and to take maybe a little bit of the pressure off, because doesn't that feel heavy? To, I mean, just I mean, I think you know that's a that's a hard thing to think about. Um, she, uh, we're, we're seeing in, in Mark's gospel at this point, we're going to see it again next week or the week after, a woman that gets it in terms of where this is all going. So where is it all going? Where is it all, where, what are we marching towards here? We're marching towards the cross. And the shadow of the cross goes all the way back in Mark's gospel. If we, if we could track it back, it would go all the way back to chapter 1, really. You just see little hints of it, and it gets stronger as it goes along. And now it's getting very, very intense. Think of, if you like, the Lord of the Rings, and I know some of you do, think of the shadow of Mordor as Frodo walks towards Mount Doom with his buddy Sam. The shadow of Mordor becomes more intense as they get closer. So you're seeing something here that is a reflection of the cross and the cross-shaped life. And particularly, we're seeing that Jesus Christ is giving on the cross, he's giving out of his poverty everything, including his whole life. So this verse applies directly to Jesus on the cross. There's nothing left that's ungiven. As he's on the cross like this naked, I mean, he's, there's nothing about looking good, but there's a lot about being good. Because he's doing it for you, and he's doing it for me. And this is, he's a loving threat. This is, that, this is where the word love comes in. He's naked, he's impoverished, he's given everything away, and then himself away for you and for me. And it's in that way that we respond to him, whether it's monetarily or just with our lives, with our hearts, with whatever it is, we are asked the question, now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to do? And this widow, she gets that in advance of the cross. It's a beautiful thing. What I'd like to do right now is, is just wrap a prayer around this. If you would pray with me, close your eyes and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your own heart. And just imagine yourself in that courtyard there and what would the Lord, the Lord say to about, about you, about me, as we put something into that receptacle? Some are giving um, out of the margins and leftovers, and some are giving more. And this woman is giving her all. And when it comes to your life, how much does Jesus Christ have? of the all? Does the one who sees into your heart, into my heart, does he, what does he see? Does his vision into your heart feel like a threat or does it feel like love? The truth is that Jesus Christ puts his arms out on the cross as a way of inviting you to come to him to allow yourself to be loved by him. Come to Jesus. If you'd like to commit your life to Jesus Christ today, come to Jesus. Come to his love for you. If you would want to recommit your life, because that word all is a big word. It's a big word for all of us. Everything. She gave everything, even her whole life, whole life, 
what part of your life is not fully submitted to your Lord? Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, you see our hearts now. Come, do what only you can do. Have your way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.